Hello, this is The Jay Show. It's Dr. Jay Smith with Dr. Andy Bannister. This is our second episode together. It is. We survived the first one. You changed your shirt. I have. It's amazing what you can stuff in a suitcase. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> now, Andy, we want to we continue on from last time. One of the things that we didn't get into is what you have done, where you've come from, a little background, biographical background. And we did ask you why you got into, interested in, right. in Islamic, and you did talk about that. But give us a little bit more background. What is it you have done? You've written a number of books, haven't you? You've also belonged to the, uh, some institutions. Could you just kind of give us, so the so the crowd can know, a little bit of who this Andy Bannister is? Yeah, so I've got a sort of a variegated uh, career. I mean, I actually, I actually came out of uh, computer science years ago. It was kind of my first interest, messing around with computers. And uh, then ended up doing uh, youth work uh, for a while. And actually then through Speaker's Corner, and uh, what I encountered there, then sort of ended up sort of reorientating into theology and then into uh, Islamic uh, studies. I've written um, two books. One we're going to talk about, which we're going to put up on the screen there. The, the, so what's the first one? So the first book I wrote, and this is the one we're going to probably talk about the most on this show, is called an oral formulaic study of uh, of the Quran. Always good to have an impressive sounding uh, title on the front because that sells books. And so that was my uh, academic study of the Quran. And it was interesting. We'll come into this, but the um, that computer science background that I'd sort of forgotten about actually became really, really useful uh, during doing my PhD because we did some computerized analysis of the Quran. We'll talk about that. And then uh, about two years ago, my other interest along with engaging Muslims is philosophy and especially atheism and as well as uh, Islam being all over our newspapers. So we're sure this very red yeah. looking it's book. It's a very red looking book called The Atheist Who Didn't book. Exist and it's an attempt really to combine comedy and, uh, and philosophy and really what I did is I was beginning to get quite annoyed with some of the kind of media savvy atheists we see out there. People like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, whose arguments are terrible but whose faces were everywhere. And I thought somebody needs to write a book to take these guys on a little bit of their own game. Uh, so it was an attempt to kind of use humor uh, to sort of show just how much was really, really wrong with many of their arguments. And uh, that was done really, really well. Uh, sold well into five figures. Yeah, um, and you, you so and your family moved. We have. So we were in a, I, you're told by, listeners will tell by the accent, I'm a, I'm a Londoner, actually born and raised across the river in South London. And uh, then I was uh, in Oxford. Then we moved in 2010 to Canada and I was in Toronto. Uh, for six years, and we came back last summer, and we now live up in uh, in Scotland. And I kind of wear two, uh, I, wear, I wear three hats actually. As my academic hat, I'm uh, an adjunct research fellow at a place called Melbourne School of Theology. Uh, That's my alma mater. Your alma mater down there in Australia, and uh, <laughs> That's practicing terrible, terrible That's accents. Uh, all of my accents. All are terrible. the Australians are cringing. At yeah, that. they're writing in right now, but they've it'll keep their minds off losing at cricket, right? And um, so there's uh, that. I also You're losing your audience, you know. I am losing the jokes right you give. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know where this goes. And people watching on the Indian subcontinent, great cricket fans out there. It's only you Americans who think that baseball is something. And then I also uh, work a third of my time for an organization called uh, RZIM or Ravi Zacharias International. Uh, and that's what you were doing in, in uh, Canada. I was doing that in Canada. It? And that's in really fact, you were in charge, weren't you? I was leading the Canadian outfit. And so, so that's, that's really an organization. responsibility. Yeah, and that's really an organization that's just uh, attempts to get the, uh, the Christian faith out there into the public square. Explain to the crowd, what do you mean when you say out there? What are some of the things you used to do? Yeah, so obviously a lot of the time, sometimes Christians can sometimes be guilty of just sitting in our churches, not actually going out there and talking to and engaging with those who don't share our Christian faith. So I was out there on university campuses and the media, uh, business forums, yeah. po politics, you name it. Anywhere where there are people who are thinkers, who are not really uh, Christians, RZAM tries to get out there and engage them. So these are public meetings? Public meetings. We do a lot of things called open forums, for example. So we'll go onto university campus, 
We'll take a topic. Sometimes it can be a more confrontational one. You know, does God exist? Is the Bible reliable? Sometimes we'll take a sort of more open-ended one. So one of my favorite topics that I've done on a lot of universities around the world is can life have meaning without God? And sometimes I'll do a talk or sometimes I'll do a dialogue or a debate with an atheist. And uh, we often get hundreds of people uh, coming out and hearing those. Really to encourage you to think and listen, think about this question as Jay and I proceed. The most important thing is whether the things you believe are true. If you're a Muslim watching this, you know, either Islam is true or it's false. It doesn't matter what your parents believe, what your culture believes, how you were raised. If Islam is true, you should believe it. If it's not true, then however much it may cost you personally, you should still abandon it and follow the truth. Let's be people who seek after truth. That's not no. always easy. But I think that's what uh, God calls us to do. Now, Andy, um, in the last episode, we introduced the idea that um, Islam is really dependent on two things. Yes. One book and one man. The book and the man. The book and the man. The book and the man, in this case, it would be the Quran. Yes, and that's right. Muhammad. And we're also dependent on two things, our book and our man. Now, because of that, we're very close to them. We understand them probably better than any other group. Christians can understand Muslims because we start from the same paradigm. You have decided to take on the book itself. And this is something that you did for your doctoral thesis. That's right. This is, uh, the, this is what you have in the book that you've just introduced. And this is what we now want to move over to. If every Muslim is dependent on these two things. Now remember, for Muslims, this is much more important than it is even for us as Christians because though we have a book and a man, we also have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship that Islam doesn't have. That's correct. So if you confront the book and their man, the Quran and Muhammad, you're confronting their, well, their whole foundation. Without that, their foundation crumbles. Very much so. I mean, I think that's beautifully put, Jay. Two, two pillars, the Book of the Man, and those pillars are intertwined in one sense, because of course, the Quran's authority, Muhammad's authority, uh, tied in to each other. If it turns out that the Quran is not what is claimed for it, then of course, Muhammad's integrity goes because he made certain claims for it. And on the other hand, of course, if Muhammad turns out not to be a prophet, if, the, if he turns out to be the kind of character for which there is question, whether your question is existence or his character, then of course the Quran partly stands on, on the one who delivered it. So these two things go together. So I think Islam has always been very, very protective around both Muhammad and the Quran. Watch what happens. Look in the last few years, the, uh, the cartoon controversy, when right. cartoonists have mocked Muhammad. What's happened? The Danish cartoons. The Danish cartoons. People got very, very upset. Uh, a few years ago when there's uh, that gentleman in the States, um, in Florida, know, Florida threatened to burn the Quran. And got very, very, very upset. Um, but a Muslim, I remember a Muslim friend once saying, Charlie Hebdo. Charlie Hebdo. They're I mean, in Paris, right here. But a Muslim friend I mean, once made this point to me, and I never thought about it like this until my Muslim friend made this point. He said to me, almost in, in passing, he said, he said, I don't care what you say about Allah, but you do not attack my Quran, you don't attack my prophet. And I'm going home thinking, look, if God is God, surely you should be concerned about attacks on him. And I found myself thinking, no, it's the book and the man. Okay, let's back it's up. The book and the You're man. bringing up something very important. Why is it they don't really have a problem with attacking God? I think for two reasons. One is God is so is so distant in, is. in one sense. Yeah. He's more of an abstract idea. You know very little about him. You, in fact, you, he's you, never come to earth. There's no way that we can say that we have a relationship with God. Well, it's Allah. more than that, Jay. It's, uh, it's he, he's never come to earth and revealed himself to us in the way that God uh, has done in Jesus Christ. So we have that. We have that. Secondly, if you read the Quran, one of the things that struck me very early on as a Christian reader of the Quran, the Quran is really just claiming to be God revealing his commands and his instructions. Rules and regulations. Now, the Bible, Don't do this, do this. Yeah. Now, the Bible contains some of those. Absolutely it does. But the, the Bible also contains God revealing his character and his identity. One of the stories for me par excellence in the Bible 
Bible is that story in Exodus chapter 3. Moses, there in the wilderness, burning bush. He's in front of the presence of God. And what does God reveal to him? Yes, he reveals an instruction. I want you to go and, you know, uh, take my people out of servitude mm -hmm. to Pharaoh. But he also reveals his personal name, Yahweh. Turn to the Quran, and there are echoes of that story. That story does turn up, but in a very sort of uh, cannibalized form. But that key moment where God reveals his very own name has, has gone. God's been pushed to Completely a distance. Missing. So in a sense, I think for Islam, criticizing Allah, raising questions about Allah, it's, it's sort of distant and remote. On the other hand, the Quran well, is... Another example that we use this all the time. In Surah 2, Surah 7, Surah 20, you have the story of, of Adam and Eve in a garden that's out, uh, it's out of earth, it's up in space somewhere, but is Allah in that garden? Well, no, he's not, is but he? But he is in our biblical text. He absolutely is, walking and talking. Genesis 3, 8 and 9. He is but, there, walking and talking with it, Adam and Eve. But it gets, more, it gets more interesting than that, though, because I remember the first time when I, used to attend, when I used to attend Speaker's Corner back in the 1990s, uh, along <laughs> with you and others, I remember that point that you would make and others really impressing on me, and I think it's absolutely right. And in 20 years of studying Islam, I completely agree with you. There was another piece to it that I didn't completely see back then, not because you didn't, preacher, I'm sure you probably did, it's as a, as, as, as a matching book into this. The, the, the descriptions of paradise in the Quran, rivers of wine, crystal cliff fountains of water, fruit trees, the huris, the young the virgins for the men, but what's missing in all those descriptions? It's the presence of God. Presence of God. Revelation 21, yeah. we have in the Bible, we have this God walking right there. and talking going on. And so to go in the Bible, God is present in the beginning, He's present at the end and in the middle of history, he's present in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Quran, missing at the beginning, missing at the end, missing in the middle. Which also leads to one other point for viewers who are maybe not Muslims or other uh, faith backgrounds here. I often get asked this question, Andy, why can't, we just, why can't you just affirm that all religions lead to God? And the answer I give to that is actually no religion leads to God. Only one relationship claims to lead to mm. God, which is the gospel. But the Quran does not claim to lead you to God. Buddhism does not claim to lead you to God. The Hindu scriptures don't claim to lead you to God. It's only Christianity in and through Jesus Christ that even offers you the presence of God. And if you want to know the Creator, not just know about Him, there's only one offer on the table, and it's not the Quran. Absolutely. I love, I love to move one step further on in Surah 7, Ayah 24. You have Allah then uh, basically, he, after they've sinned, he forgives them, but then he throws them out of the garden, down to earth. And I always ask my Muslim friend, okay, you're on earth, you're not up there. Why aren't you up there? Because, because of what Adam and Eve did. But wait a minute, you don't believe in original sin. Exactly. And you don't believe that we can be, take on the guilt of another. That's in Surah 6, Ayah 164, yeah. Surah 53, Ayah 38. And what are you going to do with Surah 724? Well, you know what? They See, get, you borrowed the story without understanding the most intrinsic meaning. Here's the meaning. thing, Jay. It gets. I like to. You know, you said you like to kick it up a gear. I like to kick up up beyond your kicking it up a gear because it gets worse. The Quran is actually very clear. I think it might be in Surah Seven, where uh, where Allah says to Adam and Eve, "Get down to get out of here. Get down from here." That's verse to the, twenty-four to the earth which will be a place of trial and testing for you. So Earth is a prison camp. The reason we're here, this is not good, God's good creation, perfectly designed for his human creatures to flourish and enjoy, as in Genesis, where God looks at creation and says it's very good. It's a prison camp. But more than that, here's a problem. Imagine, listening to this, imagine you're a faithful Muslim, and you imagine that Islam is true. Let's just play fantasy league for a moment. And uh, you, uh, you obey the commandments, you get to the day of judgment, and Allah smiles at you and says, come into paradise, my good and faithful servant. And it's wonderful. The rivers of wine, the fruit trees, the crystal uh, fountains, the huris, if you're a man, great stuff. Then on day three in paradise, you do something stupid. You sin, you say a bad word, you do something you shouldn't. What's gonna happen? Well, you're thinking, I can't sin in paradise. I'm afraid you can, because Adam, who was the first prophet. He sinned in paradise right. and he got thrown 
out. So even in Islam, if you make paradise, how can you be sure you'll stay there? When I've raised this with Muslim friends, the ones who are more alert and thinking theologically often say, well, same thing could happen to you, Andy. And I go, no, it couldn't. Because in, Islam, in Christianity, we have something that's not often talked about enough, Jay, in these conversations. We have the indwelling of God's spirit yeah. and transformation, sanctification is a theological term. The Bible tells us that when you become a Christian, God begins that process of remaking you into the image of Jesus Christ. And the Jay, the Andy that will walk and talk in the new heavens and the new earth will not be Jay 1.0 or Andy 1.0, you'll be 2.0. There will have been the upgrade. In Islam, there is no upgrade. There's no savior. There's no forgiveness for sin. There's no transformation. And the problem of sin remains. It remains down here, and in Islam it remains up there as well. Now, this is a good way to segue into what we're going to be talking about today, because you were talking about a story that is actually very similar to the biblical story. That's right. Yet it's missing some salient points. In the case of the biblical story, we know that Adam and Eve are on earth. We know that God comes down our direction and enters time and space and is walking and talking to the Kuday on earth. So from the very beginning, our God has that relationship. But what's interesting is there are enough parts of that story that we can, we can recognize. Oh, we know who Adama and Awa are. And there are many of these stories right through the, right through the Quran, aren't there? Quite a few of these stories. We talked about in the last episode. We did. Unpack that a bit. Why are these stories there and where do they come from? Well, and what have you noticed that's hmm. different? Because people have noticed this for 1,400 years. We've known, or 1,300 years as we're now saying. But certainly yeah. you've brought something up that you started wanting to go into and that you wanted to delve into much more deeply. Good Help questions. That. Yeah, well, there's a whole range of questions uh, packed into this. Let me, let me begin by, by talking about what's there. Yeah. Um, so roughly, scholars would say, roughly 20% of the text of the Quran contains what in scholarship we would call biblicist material. That story that's come uh, from, uh, and we'll talk about how it's come from, but it's come from the Bible. Let's give some examples. So, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Abraham and the sacrifice, okay, the, story, Surah 21. the story of Joseph, Surah 12, Surah 12. Uh, the story of uh, Solomon uh, Sheba, Surah 27, uh, the, the story of the Annunciation to Mary, um, Surah 19, exactly, uh, and so on and so forth. The story of Jonah, uh, for example, is referenced. So, um, all these stories, all these stories, they come from the, we think they're biblical stories, they're biblical stories. You use the word biblicist, so the reason we use the word, you've noticed there's been some yeah, problems. Yeah, well, that's the reason why we use the word biblicist, not biblical, okay. because there are some, there are some differences. the difference there. Yeah, so anyway, so biblicist means they have come from, by some means, and we'll talk about that in a moment, from the Bible. Included in that, we would also... I hope you're all following it. Not biblical, but biblicist. And the reason being, biblical is clearly, and again, I, I want to not preempt where we're going to go in a moment, clearly what hasn't happened is Muhammad has not sat down with a copy of the Bible in front of him and gone, I like that story, I'm going to write it down. Because there are such differences that scholars are, are going, well clearly whoever told these stories, if it's Muhammad or whoever, didn't actually have access to the Bible. But also, the other hugely important point, Jay, included in that label biblicist, are stories that have come out of Judaism and Christianity, but are not biblical stories. So, for example, the story of Iblis and Adam, because seven times uh, in the Quran. That's the story where, where Allah creates Adam, brings the angels in, says bow down. They all bow down apart from Iblis who refuses and he's cast out of heaven and becomes Satan. Explain who Iblis is so people so know what you're talking Iblis about. Iblis in the Quran, it's interesting you say that. The Quran is not clear exactly who Iblis is. There is a debate in, a Quranic, in, in Islamic scholarship as to whether Iblis was one of the jinn uh, or as an angel. Um, because, because the reason the argument for him being an angel is Allah calls the angels to come in and bow down and, uh, and Iblis comes with them. Uh, those who think he's a jinn, it's because his refusal to bow, he turns to Allah and says, why should I bow to, to Adam? You made, could not do this. you made him out of clay, you made me out of fire. And the Quran okay. seems to imply the jinn are made out of fire. Made of fire yeah. Anyway, 
but Iblis goes on to become Satan. The fascinating thing about that story, that's a Jewish fairy tale. It's a Jewish myth. It's not there in the Old Testament. We know the Jewish community began telling it sometime around about 200 BC, something like that is when it first sort crops up. Sort of predates the Quran. And the, rabbi, the rabbis knew it wasn't a biblical story. It was never claimed to be. It was a kind of story you told to, you know, amuse the, amuse the children, to entertain people. It was an entertaining story. These are apocryphal writings. Yeah. And we also have the same coming from the Bible. So we have uh, the, the, the Christian tradition. So we have stories like uh, Jesus bringing clay birds to life. Um, Blowing on them when they're flying to there. That's Surah yeah. 3, Ayah 49. That comes from, uh, or stories like the, 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 the infant Jesus talking in the Surah in 3, Ayah 46. This is great. You're a walking concordance. Um, I'm just going to help you out on these because these are things that people might want to no, check you good. up on. They might say, hold on, exactly. Andy's just making Now those up. stories, those are in the Quran. Those stories come from things like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Infancy Gospel of James, they date from the 200s, so 200 so what years. what are these Infancy Gospels? So basically what happens in, in Christianity, similar to, to Judaism, but once Christianity gets going, and we get into the 2 and 300s, Christians began, as well as passing on the scriptures and preaching the scriptures, began also telling sort of edifying stories. They're sermon illustrations, fairy tales, you know, stories to entertain the children. And so these are like bedtime stories in some ways. Yes, I mean, Exactly what they were used for, not entirely sure, but here's the interesting thing. I think you can mount a very strong case that the Christians who are using these, the Jews who are using these, they knew these weren't scripture. Let they me give you a big, a They made a big difference between. Let me give you a very good example why. One of my first bits of scholarship was looking at a document called the Arabic Gospel of the, the Infancy. Dates from the late 400s, early 500s, and it collects some of these earlier stories and retells them. Some people think it's influenced the Quran in a couple of places. Here's what's fascinating. When the author of the Arabic Gospel of the Infancy quotes those apocryphal books, he does so very loosely. He paraphrases. He doesn't bother quoting word for word. When he quotes the canonical Gospels, when he quotes the Bible, he is word for word the same. And scholars, I think, would say that's because he knows he's handling scripture okay. and you handle scripture differently. In the same way that if you told me a story about you and your kids that happened a, you know, a few weeks ago, you're not going to worry about making sure it's exactly word for word. Let's if you quote me a Bible verse, you will. Let's back up a bit. We do, we do know that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. That's correct. And we do know that the Jews were thrown out of Jerusalem. Many of them went out into the into diaspora. Arabia. So they went to Arabia, Among they went places. to a place like Stephan, which is yep. what today Baghdad. So we had Jewish communities there, you're absolutely right. But they took their scriptures, rolled up in scrolls, and they treasured them. But as they went out, we do know that they came across other stories. They came across other traditions. That's right, we came across other traditions. Now, at the same time as well, it's interesting to think about Arabia for a moment. We know a couple of other quite interesting things about Arabia. There were also Christian groups there, particularly uh, heterodox, unorthodox uh, flavors of Christianity. For very good reasons. If you think of a picture of a map up to the north and the west of Arabia. But we can show a map right here. Map. We'll put a map up here right now. Isn't it amazing that technology you have? It is. It's exactly. terrific. I, mean, I can only do this because I'm not the one that's going to do it. It's our men on yeah. the And what, what viewers at home may not know is Jay is actually 94 years old, but using, you know, Digital technology, look at this. We can make him look like an 80-year-old man. You're, if you um, believe that, you're not going to believe anything else he says. So anyway, this. so up to the north and west of Arabia. I am older than you, but not that old. Up to the northwest of Arabia, you have the Byzantine Empire, okay. Christian Empire. Um, they took a pretty robust approach to, to heretics in that they persecuted them quite and extensively. And threw them out. And threw them out. So and a lot of those they threw them, throw them too? Well, a lot of those groups went into, went into Arabia. So these Arabs are hearing these stories. Yep. You also have, of course, uh, to the, uh, over to the north and the east, you have the, uh, the Zoroastrians, the Persians up there. So those stories are floating in. And you have sort of native Arabian religious groups as well. So what scholars will, t will, will say is that the Arabia into which Muhammad is born 
in 570 AD, if the Muslim histories are, are to be believed, uh, is a religious, religiously pluralistic. It's a melting pot. In fact, we see that in the Islamic histories. Think about the Quran. Of all the people who have been thrown out, you might say, but they are the They're most. all there. And of course, we, in what sense, that's not, for, that's not controversial. Many Muslims may be aware, but if not, you can read the text there in the, uh, in the biographies. We, we read that the, uh, when Muhammad was a young man, the Kaaba, that great cube-shaped building in Mecca towards, towards which Muslims uh, pray, uh, today, according to tradition, there in the Kaaba, how many idols were in the Kaaba? 365. But let me, we, we're not, we're going to dispel this in another talk we're going to We do are indeed. So, so let's not go there. Do you know what he says according to what the traditions say? That, exactly. That's now what, what we're do you mean by that? So what we're, what we're talking here is we're talking about what the things like the Hadith and the Sirah okay. and those early Muslim sources tell us. We have a, a religious melting pot. But something... Two to three hundred years later. Something else is going on as well, though. Arabia is also an illiterate culture. Writing hasn't really taken place. Writing is beginning to develop, but largely it's an illiterate culture. So, for example, what is it that we know of in scholarship and histor in historical studies from before Islam? Well, Arabia, of course, is famous for the oral poetry of the Bedouins. It's an oral poetry. They didn't write it down. They didn't have access to writing. The Bible, so for example. there is an oral tradition that exists. I'm there is an oral tradition that exists. And also, we don't know, for example... The suspended poems, the Mu'alakat. Those kind of things. Well known. Well these known. Predate these predate Islam. Muhammad and these, predate and these Islam. are oral creations. Well known at that time. The Bible's not available, as far as we know, in scholarship in Arabic. Um, why is that? At the time. Again, because you're dealing with an oral culture. Okay, let's stop right there. Do we know when the Bible was finally translated into, into Arabic? Remind me of the date you're the walking inside. Well, actually, no. We were just finding out now that the earliest... Biblical text, the earliest New Testament text, is the Codex Sinaiticus 151, which was found in Mount Sinai, where were the Sinaiticus is found. They've just now found it and looked at it, and they find they're dating this to 687. So there you go. So the late kind of, 7th century, yeah, it long fits. after Muhammad's death, exactly. we have the earliest text of the New Testament that has been translated into Arabic. I just yeah. want to put one other thing just for people to hear this. Do you know what the name of Jesus is in that? I'm going to guess Isa. Nope. No. Yeshua. Yeshua. Interesting. Stop and think. Yes. Why is it that the Christians were still using Yeshua as late as 687? Yet the Quran supposedly had Issa prior to that uh, in this in, in what we're talking about a good 20, 50, 30 years earlier than that. Interesting, eh? Okay, well, that's not that's another, that's, another, that's for another thing. That's that, another thing. We're going to do this in the manuscript evidence. But, let's but now see. let's come back to this. So you, what you've got, you've got this great oral melting pot, oral culture before writing, ideas floating around. Now what's yeah. very, very, very interesting there's been an incredible amount of work done on how oral cultures operate. Uh, in fact, there's a whole school of scholarship known as oral, oral traditional studies. Because one of the things that first intrigued me when I first began talking with Muslims in the 1990s, late 1990s, I would have Muslim friends come to me and say, look, it's easy, right? The Quran is a miracle because Muhammad was illiterate. You know, the Quran claims he's illiterate. The Quran claims, allegedly claims he's illiterate. The Muslim tradition allegedly claims that he does. And of course, Muslims who are a bit more well-read would say, you know, Arabia is an oral culture. And here's this, you know, beautiful work of literature. Aha! It must be a miracle. And when you first heard that, ar hear that argument, when I first heard that argument, you'll get it all the time. In fact, we're still getting it. Yeah, I remember thinking, well, it actually, sounds quite impressive. All of those steps line up. It sounds quite impressive. There is a glaring problem in that argument. It took me a couple of years to see, and it's this. We know of other oral cultures that from which we have, have descended incredibly sophisticated works of mm -hmm. literature. Most famously in the Western tradition, Homer, not the little yellow guy on The Simpsons, the Greek uh, poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, the two founding works of, of Western literature. He lived before writing, long before writing. How was he able to compose these great poems without access to, to being able to write? And the answer is, we know that, that work has been done. 
and he did it in exactly the same way that I think the author of the Quran did it. Okay, explain that. I was waiting for you to, yeah. I'm not going to, this is, this is now, I, I, we're now really getting to the new fruit, uh, the nut, uh, the, the kernel of what you really did exactly. get to. So let's unpack this. I hope you're all following this as, because this is, this is really where Andy now has really, you've done this, uh, really you're the first to do this. No, I don't think anybody else I don't has think anybody it. has, no. So, so what happened? So let's just, uh, ba let's back up and talk about Homer for, for just for a, f a few, a, f a minute or so. What? Explain who Homer is. Not so Homer is to say Homer is the uh, is uh, was a Greek poet uh, who lived long before writing was invented. And as I say, there were two very famous poems that Homer wrote: the Iliad and the Odyssey. So this is long before Aristotle. Long before Aristotle, those Socrates. guys exactly. In fact, the whole of really kind of Greek literature was based on it was influenced by him. And in fact, of course, he's influenced Western. Do we know his dates? Culture and so forth. Sometime around about potentially the second millennium BC, um, okay. possibly even earlier. There's date, there's questions about his exact his exact dates. But um, key thing is he exists before writing. Before writing has has, has been invented. By analysing his works, a number of scholars discovered um, and it, a fascinating feature. Built into Homer's poems are these short repeated phrases that are used time and, and time again. In fact, the term we use for them in oral traditional studies is, is formulae. And the reason they're there is actually when you're, if you're an oral poet, and particularly if you're composing live in front of an audience, I mean, we're doing this live, but let's imagine there were 500 people in the room and you or I were speaking to them without, without notes. To be able to go at speaking speed, it's quite hard without, without a script or unless you've memorised it. And formulae allow you to compose your work at performance speed in front of an audience. Now what was interesting, the first scholars to notice this feature in Homer then had the bright idea of going, let's go and see if we can find some living oral cultures to see if this actually works in reality. They did, they found this in Yugoslavia around the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century and uh, two scholars called Albert Lord and Milman Parry went out and recorded thousands of hours of actual contemporary oral poets and found them doing the same thing, formulae or what they used. And since, that, since their groundbreaking work in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, we've studied something like 250 to 300 different oral cultures around the world and works that have originated from those cultures. And in almost every case, we found that formulaic language occurs time and time this again. This whole thing of studying the formula is something very new. So you're talking about the end of the last century. Really the end of the last 20th, 20th century when this began to be, to be done. So this is all new material. Pretty new stuff. And what's interesting, as I say, is the number of cultures it's been, it's been used 300. on. Over 300. Almost 300, for over 300 now. Well, I'll say when I began my PhD studies and I began being suspicious that the Quran had come out of this kind of milieu, this kind of background, the thought occurred to me, I wonder what would happen if you took this methodology and used it on the Quran. Now, formulaic analysis is very, very slow because you open a text up and you go through line before by line. we do that, because we, are, we do want to end this episode and I don't want to really start something that's really going to be exciting. I want to leave it for the next oh, episode. Oh, okay, that's exciting. So let's kind of review yeah. uh, what we've done so far. Uh, this, to me, I'm, I'm starting to get salivate now because this, this is getting exciting, not only because of the fact that this is new, but it also shows us something in, uh, that about the Quran that takes it away from this yes. book that is in heaven, this book that's on eternal tablets. And it puts it into history. Puts it in history and it puts it into human history. In, I think that's hugely important. In fact, uh, a good friend of uh, mine and a friend of yours, uh, Dr. Keith Small yeah. uh, from Oxford. I mean, Keith has written a, a little bit. He's written a big, several big academic books. In fact, we have, we have one of them here, this one. There we go. Um, he's written a, a, a little book called Holy Books of a History. And it's a very clever title. Because I think sometimes Muslims can end up assuming, you know, the Quran dropped directly from, from heaven. But to go to actually, the more you study it, and particularly study, study it using some of the methodology I'm talking about, you put it back into history. And I think that's hugely important because to understand a text, you need to understand where it came from. In fact, at the end of my book, 
I use an analogy from, arch from archaeology. If an archaeologist is digging in the ground and they bring a piece of pottery out of gr the ground, before they go off and clean it up and get all excited about it, they're going to record what's above it and what's below it in the ground so you can put that in its historical position because you can understand it better. And one of my problems with the Quran, Muslims, I think well-meaning to because they believe what they've been told, have ripped the Quran out of history and in so doing something has been lost. And some contemporary scholarship, I think, has made them the same mistake. My argument is, put it back in history. It looks like an oral document. We'll go into more why and in the next episode. And you do know that orality existed at that time. There were this, lots of oral traditions. There certainly, this had not really been written we, down. There was, we do know that before Muhammad, that you have oral culture, certainly in the Arabic world. Well, you have it in the Arabic world. You have, as I say, the, the oral Arabic poets before Muhammad. And then here's yeah. what gets very interesting, Jay. Immediately after Muhammad, um, we know that a lot of early Islam was spread and developed uh, by the by oral preachers, the the Qusas. Uh, they turn up on the pages of the These are storytellers. Uh, storytellers. They turn up on the pages of the Hadith and the and the biographies. And in fact, what's interesting is it's about a hundred or two hundred years after Muhammad. Um, as, as Islam is becoming more of a literary culture then, there's an attempt by the authorities to clamp down on them. And you can find this in the uh, in the So you have record. orality before Muhammad, you have orality after Muhammad. We're going to then pick up the next episode, we're going to look at that. And we're going to show how the Quran fits, how the right, Quran in fits the right in. So you're putting it in history, you're also showing that this uh, there, but you're going to show us an awful lot of just how oral it is. Very, very how oral. How many formulas are. That's going to be in the next subject. And so the human next fingerprints segment. all over it is what we're going to show. Thanks so much, Andy. It's been good to have you here. This is something that you've not heard before. This is new. It's going to disturb some of you Muslims because what Andy is doing, he's taking it away from this traditional view, this orthodox view, that the Quran is above criticism, that it was has always existed. It's this uncreated tablet in heaven that was sent down piecemeal over a period of 22 years to this man named Muhammad. He's going to show you that actually there's, it's much, much more sophisticated than that. It's much more intrinsic than that. It has very little to do with God and it has everything to do with man. Well, this is Jay and Andy, the two paradox right here in London, <laughs> over and out.